Today, May 40 here. Want to talk about Christian nationalism tonight. It's Andrew England now, a Christian nationalist, but uh, let's begin with um, Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. For all the bad things going on, there are on the other side Joe Biden's approval ratings, which are a nonstop source of joy for us. And if you've seen them recently, you know in your heart exactly how the November elections are going to turn out. Biden's obviously been a disaster for the country, but not only has he made the U.S. poorer, weaker, and much more ridiculous, people know that he has. And they tell pollsters about it all the time. Biden is the single least popular president in modern American history. At this point, absolutely nobody is impressed by Joe Biden, and that would be including Dr. Jill. So this is a big problem for the Biden family, obviously, but a much bigger problem even for the Democratic Party, which Joe Biden leads. Unpopular presidents drag their parties to the bottom in midterm elections. That's the unchanging rule of politics. You saw it famously in 1994 with the Republican takeover of Congress after two disastrous years with Bill Clinton. You saw it in 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. You saw it in 2010 after Obamacare. You saw it in 2018. So there's no question based on precedent that that's about to happen once again in 2022 in November. That's what everybody assumes. And in fact, it may well happen. We're certainly praying for it. But as of tonight, we have to be honest with you. The numbers don't show that happening. Not even close. In fact, all the indications we have right now suggest that despite Joe Biden's well-earned unpopularity, the Democratic Party still, again, as of tonight, has a strong chance of holding Congress in November. The prediction markets, which many believe are more accurate than the polls, overwhelmingly point to the Democrats keeping at least one chamber. And maybe strangest of all, as of this week, Democrats are leading Republicans nationally on the so-called generic ballot by about four points. So if you ask people, which party do you like more, they say Democrats. And maybe that's why Democrats are raising a lot more money, too, and not just money from their patrons in big tech, but from small dollar donors. That's bad. In June, Democrats raised $64 million online from 4 million people. That same month, this June... Republicans raised only $26 million online from just over a million donors. From the first quarter to the second quarter of this year, donations to the Republican Party dropped by more than 12%. By contrast, donations to the Democratic Party are up more than 20%. That is not good at all, not simply because you need money to run a political campaign, but because money is, to some extent, a measure of commitment and intensity. And you see the same dynamic playing out in individual races across the country. For example... Last quarter, Raphael Warnock, that would be the thoroughly mediocre Democratic senator from Georgia, the guy who was caught on video appearing to commit spousal abuse, remember that? That guy raised more than $12 million online. His opponent, Herschel Walker, who everyone likes, raised less than half of that. So far, Raphael Warnock has raised an astounding amount of money. He's hauled in more dollars online than seven Republican senatorial candidates combined. Candidates in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, and Georgia combined. Herschel Walker is now trailing Raphael Warnock by 10 points. And this is happening in a state they tell us went for Joe Biden by a margin of about one third of a percentage point. That is bizarre. What is going on here? It's not just happening in Georgia. According to the official numbers, you'll recall, Joe Biden won the state of Pennsylvania by a little over a single percentage point in 2020. So it's been two years. Biden has become much less popular since then. Meanwhile, Pennsylvania, which is controlled by the Democratic Party, has become much worse, far more chaotic and dangerous since then. Here was the scene in the state's largest city 
on Tuesday. Nearly 100 shots fired on 57th Street between Haverford and Westminster tonight. A sea of evidence markers lined this West Philly street, telling of the potentially deadly chaos that unfolded here. Responding officers found four victims on 57th Street. Two shot in the head in critical condition tonight. One victim, we're told, in a BMW is an innocent bystander caught in gunfire and shot in the shoulder. All while kids and young adults were on a nearby playground. Over 100 shots right in the middle of the street. It's hard to believe that's an American city. It's hard to believe that's the place where our Constitution was written. It's totally unacceptable. And it wasn't organic. It didn't just happen. This is a result of policies from the Democratic Party, period. Now, you'd think, this being a democracy, that voters would punish anyone who had anything to do with turning Philadelphia into the disaster you just saw. And John Fetterman certainly did have a hand in that. He's the sitting lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Fetterman now wants a new job. He's running for the U.S. Senate. He's the candidate. In some ways, John Fetterman is the weakest possible candidate you could run. He has, obviously, a very public record of failure. He also had a devastating stroke this spring, which is sad, but it affected him. Here he is campaigning for Senate. You can count on us to eliminate the filibuster. If you come out and step with us, we will be able to stand with you in D.C. And let's, let's get some stuff done for America. I gave away the lieutenant governor governor in Pennsylvania, the only lieutenant governor in the history to do that. So this guy is everything you'd think wouldn't work. He's radical, for one thing. Let's eliminate the filibuster. Oh, good idea, John Fetterman. He's implicated in the destruction of the state that he's still the lieutenant governor of, and he's obviously impaired. That's not an attack on him. It's just true. Watch him. So you'd think there would be no way a guy like that could win a Senate seat. And here's the sad news. However, John Fetterman is winning overwhelmingly. He currently has a double-digit lead over his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz. The National Republican Senatorial Committee just slashed its spending in the state of Pennsylvania by more than $5 million, including their ad buys in the city of Philadelphia. That's a retreat, and it's happening in a state that Republicans ought to be winning. What is going on here, and why is no one mentioning it? Well, a couple of things are going on. But first, let's hear from Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is the head Republican in the Senate. He's not there because everyone likes him. McConnell has no close friends. He's loved by no one. But he's considered very smart. He is a master tactician, as the dummies who cover politics for Politico and the Washington Post are always telling us. In Washington, people are very much afraid of Mitch McConnell. Cross him and he will hurt you. And they listen carefully to his political analysis because that's what he spent his life doing. That's the only thing he spent his life doing. So here's what Mitch McConnell says the problem is. Watch. There's a, probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Uh, candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. So there's the re head Republican in the Senate conceding three months out that Republicans are probably not going to retake the Senate. Well, why is that? Well, the answer, of course, was in the final line. You just heard some of the candidates are mediocre. That's Mitch McConnell's excuse. And there's some truth in that. Obviously, some of them are mediocre. But compared to what? Mediocre in the Congress? Well, let's see. Dianne Feinstein hasn't spoken a coherent sentence in years. 
hasn't had trouble getting reelected. Eric Swallow had sex with a Chinese spy. He's still there. So mediocre people get elected to office. Lots and lots and lots of them do every cycle. So what McConnell's analysis really is, of course, is buck passing. Don't blame me. I didn't choose these people. All right. But they're still the nominees. So if you want to save the country and move in a different direction, yes, using some mediocre people to do it, what are you going to do? No hint of what you might do for Mitch McConnell other than just accept the inevitable. Now, the truth is, it's entirely possible Mitch McConnell doesn't want to retake the Senate because then you'd have to run things. And there's one thing Republican leaders dislike, it's running anything. Much easier to complain on Fox News. But if you actually wanted to win, what would you do? Well, here's an idea, just kind of out of nowhere, just spitballing here. How about you run on issues that voters care about? That might work even for a mediocre candidate. So let's say, again, just for the sake of argument, that you ran a campaign on illegal immigration and crime. Now, these are two issues that didn't just arise out of nowhere. They're the product of policies the Democratic Party put in. They were intentional outcomes. We have millions of people coming in illegally, and we have a lot more murders than we had two years ago. These two issues, immigration and crime, don't simply annoy voters, though they very much do. These two issues threaten the existence of our society. So maybe you should run on them. That seems reasonable, but that's not what they're doing. Oh, no. Here, for example, is a recent campaign ad from Dr. Oz. He's the guy who's losing to the stroke victim in Pennsylvania. Watch. I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and uh, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Not a ton of broccoli there. There's some asparagus. That's four dollars. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's ten dollars of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's four dollars more. And she loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars. Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's $20 for crudite, and this doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. <laughs> $20 for crudite, whatever that is. It's obviously very easy to make fun of that, but it's not entirely a stupid ad. If, if inflation were the salient issue here, the generational issue of this campaign season, but it's not. Inflation's terrible. It's making people poorer. We actually could tank the U.S. dollar. These are all big, big problems. But changing the population of the United States, allowing people to be murdered in the street, letting drug addicts live on the sidewalk and sending them crack pipes, that will change everything forever. These are offenses against the most basic rules of any civilization. And the most basic of all is you reward people for doing the right thing and you penalize them for doing the wrong thing. If you start doing the opposite, then everything falls apart. And everybody knows that. So why not just say it? Why not just say that? Don't be embarrassed. Just say that. If you live in Texas, for example, a supposedly conservative state, you don't even have police protection anymore. That's how quickly things have changed on the most basic level. That's not some report from a government agency telling you what the inflation rate is. That's your life. You don't have police protection anymore. If there's one reason to run for office, it's to fix things like that. Here's Fox reporter Madison Allworth describing it. In Dallas, they are unable to fill the nearly 600 openings that they have budgeted for. 
In Atlanta, they have over 400 openings that they cannot fill, even with an up to $4,000 signing bonus. Police department has been demonized across the country, in communities across the country from coast to coast. It's been demonized. If that police officer in uniform is not on your corner, we're seeing the results. The staffing crisis is creating crime. It's creating violence. You take a look at crime across the U.S., and it is way up. Robbery is up nearly 20% in Chicago and Los Angeles, and here in New York City, up nearly 40%. Okay. Uh, Crudités, 20 bucks. Got it. But that? That's more important than everything else that's going on right now. Law and order. You see it on the streets of our cities. You see it at our southern border. It's collapsed. So if you're a Republican voter, and not just a Republican voter, any voter, you probably want to know, what is the government going to do about the fact that I can call 911 and no one shows up? What are you going to do about the fact that our border is open to the world and that millions of them have come in illegally? How can you take the country seriously when it doesn't even have a border? And it doesn't. And we know that because on video every single day, people stream in. Fox's Bill Mulugin just caught the whole thing once again on camera. Take a look at this video we shot yesterday where we're standing. This is the first time we had ever seen this. The Texas National Guard closed and locked a gate on this property. It's a major crossing area, and they blocked the illegal immigrants from being able to come into this property. It's private property. The owner allows the National Guard and Border Patrol to work here. But you can see illegal immigrants started showing up. They weren't let in. They expected to be let in, and they were surprised they couldn't get in. Here's what happened, though. Take a look at this video. Border Patrol showed up. A supervisor came with a key, opened up that gate, and let all of those illegal immigrants in, symbolic of the way the state of Texas handles things versus the way the federal government handles things. So if every Republican candidate is repeated, repeat after me, law enforcement, law and order is not racist. Law and order is a prerequisite for civilization. And if it goes away, so does the country. You would win the votes not simply of your own voters, but if a lot of other voters and people who've never voted before and any normal Democrat would agree with that because it's inherently true. But it's the opposite of what we have. As it, when Ann Coulter saw the video we just played, she noted correctly that it's easier to get into this country as an illegal alien than it is to return as an American citizen back into JFK. <laughs> By the way, the people you saw are the ones who just want to be caught. They're turning themselves in so they can get bust to your town. A lot of people who don't want to be caught, and those people are bringing in fentanyl, which is killing thousands of Americans every month. It's been a busy few weeks for U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers in Nogales. At the checkpoint on Saturday, they found 2.5 pounds of black tar heroin, 9 pounds of heroin, 89 pounds of meth, and 320,000 fentanyl pills. Later that day, another huge bust, including more than 40 pounds of drugs and 150,000 fentanyl pills hidden in a car. Border officials say people are becoming more creative in the ways they smuggle items through. In one case, someone tried to hide 10,000 fentanyl pills using a body-shaping garment. Everybody knows this is happening. This is not hidden information. These are not the Gnostic Gospels. Every American citizen knows exactly what's happening. And yet the leaders of the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell, will watch footage like that and tell you, you know, the, the most important issue that we face, territorial integrity of Ukraine. 
And then the same breath would say there's nothing the Republican Party can do to avert historic humiliation in the midterm elections. But the truth, as you well know, is that the people who run the Republican Party don't actually want to do anything about it. There are candidates who are talking about this stuff. J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters in Arizona, Joe Kent in the Pacific Northwest. The leaders of the Republican Party in Washington would rather those guys lose and people like them lose than change the focus of the party to issues that voters actually care about. But the truth is you can't win elections unless you listen to voters. They're telling you what they want. Republicans have less than three months to figure this very simple riddle out or it's going to be an actual disaster. Stephen Miller has been following this since the beginning. He's a former senior White House advisor. He joins us tonight. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for coming on. This seems like the simplest formula ever. Every normal person hates crime. You'd really have to be Kamala Harris to want more crime. Why aren't they running on this? They're not running on it for the reasons you identified. Joe Biden is the most unpopular president in American history. We should be looking at the largest midterm victory for Republicans, likewise, in American history. And instead, the forecasts are shrinking every single day. Why? Because Mitch McConnell isn't interested in running a national referendum that says, elect Republicans, and in January, we seal the border... We reform law enforcement to go after criminals, not Republicans, exactly. and we end the war on America's children. Now, what he wants to do is handpick candidates that he thinks will like Mitch and Mitch will like them. And if that means we have 48 seats or we have 49 seats, so be it. He gets to stay on as majority leader. We are witnessing in real time the greatest self-inflicted wound we have ever seen. If Republicans went out every day and said, we have had more illegal immigrants ever before this year than have been recorded in world history. We have increases in crime in our cities that no civilized nation has ever seen. And if you elect a Republican majority, we will go in in January and we will take the first funding bill and we will attach to it a requirement the border be shut and a requirement that the FBI stop attacking their opponents and start locking up and breaking apart organized crime in America. And you say that in every state and in every congressional district in this country, and you will win a landslide like you have never seen before. But nobody wants to step up and even make that promise. That's exactly right. And actually, there's precedent for it. The largest landslide in the history of the American presidency was 1972 by a candidate who did not win on charm, but won on law and order. And you can mock Richard Nixon all you want, but he was right. 49 and states. I, that's exactly right. So, again, how dumb are the people who run the party? Well, a lot of people have been drinking the Frank Luntz Kool-Aid. I was a congressional oh. staffer for almost a decade. I went to all of these presentations. So what they do is they sit you down and they say, well, we ran a message. And it says that controlling wasteful Washington spending polls at 95%. To which I would say, you know what else pulls at 95%? I like cotton candy. Uh, I think airplanes are really neat and super cool. Um, but I enjoy watching movies on Sunday. None of that gets anybody elected. What gets people elected is pushing messages where there's nowhere to hide. I'm for putting violent criminals behind bars. I'm for deporting exactly. illegal aliens. And you're not. So I win and you lose. That's how you win elections. Yeah. And how about Raphael Warnock? Why don't you explain that video where you seem to be committing spousal abuse? Like, why is that the memory hole? That guy's a U.S. senator. I thought we were against that stuff. Maybe he'll come on and Fight explain to it. win. Stephen Miller, great to see you tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. So a major U.S. hospital is just exposed for mutilating children. They call it gender-affirming care, but it's sexual mutilation of children. We've got video of the hospital promoting the sexual mutilation of children, which we're going to show you straight ahead.
this is funny. <laughs> look what, uh, look how, how Tucker ends his segment. <laughs> Rest in peace, Brian Stelter, who was fired by CNN. So uh, Brian Stelter started off with a blog on the major TV news anchors. And one of the first people who donated to his blog, and he started this at about age 16, one of the first people who donated to his blog was Tucker Carlson. But uh, the new the new owners of CNN want to position it back towards the center. They want to move it from the center to the left. And so they are slowly discarding many of the, the more extreme left-wing members of the organization. So reliable sources have become increasingly Trump-bashing, Republican-bashing over the past six years. And uh, CNN has, has lost the center. That's... Uh, I mean, Tucker's funny. Like like uh, Nick Fuentes. I mean, these guys are having a good time. All right. What the heck is Christian nationalism? Luckily, we have Richard Spencer and Mark Brahman here to explain it to us. Absolute bold claim of Christianity is globalism. The absolute bold claim of Christianity is globalism. Wow. So... It just occurred to me while I was getting ready for the show tonight, why does Richard Spencer say so many ludicrous and ridiculous things about Christianity? So why is this statement that uh, the essence of Christianity, globalism, why is this ridiculous? Because Christianity is different in different times and different places depending on different adherents. But Richard chooses to give privilege to certain Christian texts over other Christian texts. Now, you can go through the sacred texts of Judaism and Christianity make a really strong case for nationalism. But you can also cherry pick and find a few texts in there that are making the case for globalism. So Richard operates with the, the no true Scotsman fallacy, like, you know, no true Christian could, could be a nationalist. Nationalists, nationalism is the very opposite of Christianity. Christianity is all about globalism. But Christianity is a religion that's been around for 2,000 years, and Japanese Christianity is very different from the Christianity being practiced in West Africa, which is different from the Christianity being practiced in England, which is different from the Christianity being practiced in New York City, which is different from the Christianity being practiced in Los Angeles or Australia or New Zealand or, or India. Right? There's not one monolithic Christianity. There's not a mere Christianity. There's not an essential Christianity. There's not a true Christianity that's all about globalism. There are parts of Christianity that tend towards globalism. There are just as many parts of Christianity that tends towards nationalism. Right? Christianity, like Judaism, is almost infinitely flexible. So it just struck me, why does Richard, who's an erudite, intelligent, thoughtful, well-read man, why does he say so many ridiculous things about Christianity? And then it, it hit me. Richard is competing with Jesus for your attention. Richard feels like he has to compete with Christianity for your attention. So just like Richard cuts down, criticizes, and tries to demolish every other competing commentator, he also does the same thing for Christianity because he views Christianity as competition for glory and attention and money that better belongs to him. So Richard Spencer views himself as the creator of a new religion, Apolloism. And so he feels this this visceral need to try to crash Christianity or discredit Christianity the same way that he 
say, tries to discredit Tucker Carlson or John Darbyshire or Jared Taylor or Nick Fuentes, right? Everyone who competes with Richard Spencer for glory and attention, Richard wants to discredit. And so he even takes it. He wants to fight with Jesus. He wants to discredit Jesus. He wants to discredit Christianity. He wants to discredit Judaism. He wants to discredit every other religion but Apolloism. He wants to discredit every uh, other intellectual but himself, because every other intellectual, every other public intellectual, every other commentator and guru, right? they're competing. They are taking away glory and attention that Richard believes more properly belongs to him. That this is Richard going up against Jesus. And then it all starts to make sense. And I, I think Christians kind of, they... They like the idea, and I think it's kind of embedded in their religion, of being entrenched and put upon, basically, of like, we're fighting against this. Wow. So Christians, all right, that, that monolithic group of two billion people, they like to feel like they're put upon. Wow. What an insight. There's virtually nothing that unites Christians, right? Christians as a two billion group of people have almost nothing in common. You can't make these these broad sweeping generalizations about Christians, including that they want to feel put upon. Every group, right, feels put upon. Every group nurses a victim complex. It has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. It's just the nature of how human beings experience life. Secular atheist or, you know, we're fighting against the, the demons or the heathens or, or, or whatever. Uh, two billion Christians don't feel out out there that they're fighting against demons or pagans or secular humanists. Most Christians are raising their kids. They're going to work. They're getting an education. They, they gather to, to worship together maybe once a week, once a month, once a year. Right? They're just regular folks like you and me. Right? They found something that makes their life a little better. Right? There's no grand ideology or there's no grand hatred that unites the world's two billion Christians. But all of that, and so they kind of think about their own little community, you know, in battle against these forces. But Every community thinks about their own little community, right? That's what the nature of being human, right? If you didn't have this, you know, delusion that you're the center of the universe, that you're partaking in some incredibly important role in a cosmic drama, you would feel crushed by your own insignificance. Ernest Becker's right. It's not the fear of death that haunts us. It's the fear of insignificance. It's the fear that after we die, our lives, when they're looked back upon, will show zero significance. So people don't want to feel insignificant, whether they're Christians or Jewish or Muslim or black or white or Japanese. People want to feel like they're playing an important role in a cosmic drama. So none of Richard's comments here are apropos to Christians. But the, the radical claim of Judaism and Christ, and Christ is a Jew, is globalism. The radical claim of Christianity and Judaism is globalism. Right? Only if you privilege a few texts, all right? You could privilege a few texts in Judaism and Christianity and make it say absolutely anything. Absolutely, you could just pick this out or, or, oh, what do you do with, you know, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7? Oh, but what do you do with Romans chapter 2, verse 9? 
right? So you just privilege a few texts and you act as though that you have the essence, right? You have pared down true Christianity. Right? Richard is conducting himself like a fundamentalist preacher that he has discovered. He knows mere Christianity. He knows true Christianity. He knows the essence of Christianity that at its core is this radical claim of globalism, right? And that he protests against, you know, situational claims about Christianity. But all there is, if you want to talk about what's real, the situations, right? What, what Richard is describing are his faith statements about Christianity. But in reality, all we have are discrete situations, different people at different times, in different conditions, different places, you know, reacting to incentives, all right? All we have are islands in the stream, this is what we are. No one in between. How can we be wrong? Sail away with me. I mean, it is on. It is one day all knees shall bend to this king of kings. Yeah, everybody wants to believe that they're right. All right? Everybody develops a hero system. Right? And hero system, I was, keep trying to talk to Duvid about hero systems, and he keeps... Uh, understanding hero systems as belief in heroes. But that's not what hero systems all are, are all about. Hero systems are the systems that we believe in and believe that we're participating in so that we don't get crushed by, by our own insignificance. And, and there's just no way to live without a hero system, right? Hero systems, they're systems of collective meaning. Right? We all make out meaning collectively. We, we never get to transcend hero systems. You know, people on the left have hero systems. People on the right, secular people, religious people have hero systems. So this comes from the anthropologist Ernest Becker. Right? Society is a symbolic action system. It is a structure of statuses and roles, customs and rules of behavior designed to serve as a vehicle for earthly heroism. Now, each... Hero system script is a little different. We all have slightly different stories. Each culture has different hero systems within it. All right, so what anthropologists call cultural anth relativity, this is really just the relativity that everyone in the world has a hero system, and there are a lot of different hero systems. Right? Each cultural system cuts out roles for earthly heroics. All right? We all see ourselves as the stars of our own story. Right, so you've got the high heroism of a Winston Churchill or a Mao or a Buddha. You've got the low heroism of the coal miner or the peasant or the simple priest. You've got the plain, everyday, earthy heroism wrought by gnarled working hands guiding a family through hunger and disease. So it doesn't really matter what the basis for your cultural hero system is magical or religious or primitive or secular or scientific or civilized. We all have a hero system. We all serve our hero system to feel that we matter, that we count, that we have value, that we have a special place in the cosmos, that we are ultimately useful to creation, that we have an unshakable meaning. And we earn this by carving out a place in nature or by building an edifice that reflects, you know, our values or a temple or a cathedral or a totem pole or a skyscraper or a family that lasts generations, right? We live on the hope and the belief that our contributions will not simply decrease Okay, but that they all have lasting worth and meaning. Gentlemen, the words that we say today on this show will echo down through eternity, right? We need to believe that what we say and do will outlive and outshine death and decay. That 
who we are matters, right? No matter how secular or scientific we claim to be, right, we still have an insatiable need to be special in the cosmos. And we have a system by which how we conduct ourselves, you know, is ultimately meaningful. So there's a terrific uh, podcast called Philosophize This. Just a fear of death. In many ways, that would be a much easier problem to solve, but he'd be missing out on most of what Becker is saying here. What induces this terror in people is not the act of dying. People don't fear the moment of their death. They fear the implications of death, what our death will say about our lives and the things we did or didn't do while we were here on this planet. So maybe the more accurate way to describe what we fear is to say that we fear both life and death. And to Becker, the two adjectives that best describe what we fear about those two things, life and death, is that one, we fear impermanence, and two, we fear insignificance. So we don't just fear death to Becker. What we fear is the end of life having been insignificant. Now, this fear of impermanence and insignificance, to Becker, this is going to animate and explain basically everything that we do in our lives as human beings. Because one thing's obvious to him. When you're confronted by how fragile your biological existence is, faced with how incomprehensible the universe is in terms of complexity, and along with it, faced with considering your own insignificance and impermanence in the grand scheme of things, one thing's for sure to Becker at that point. You're not just going to sit around in a state of neurotic terror for your entire life. People are going to find something that makes them feel better. So what are the options at that point? Becker thinks there are thousands of them. Once again, the title of the book is The Denial of Death. And what he's referencing there is that we live in a state of denial about our death, and we do so in a bunch of interesting, creative, sometimes covert ways, which is just to say that some of the ways we live in denial of our death are far more obvious than others. Some of them are very obvious, and there's a few of these very obvious ones in the honorable mention column before we get to the real meat of Becker's analysis of society. So let's get those out of the way here. First of all, religion. Organized religion is an obvious example to Becker of a method that people might utilize to escape this fear of insignificance and impermanence that may come along with their death. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole point of there being an afterlife. Second honorable mention of obvious ways people avoid death, drugs. Drugs are something people do. Uh, but it really should be said, drugs are not the only thing in this category. The same mental process could be applied to any grandiose movement into some form of escapism. Or right. What we're doing right now is denying our own significance. We are gathering together. We are reinforcing a meaning that we're creating together. And we're saying we matter. What we stand for matters. What we believe in, what we're dedicated to here is going to outlast us. And Ernest Becker is not saying that having a hero system is stupid. He's saying it's inevitable. All right. It's a tool to be more effective in life, right? How's, how's your life working out for you, right? So one way to have a more effective, more happy life is to develop a hero system. And religion can be absolutely awesome for this. You get standards of right and wrong, and you get an important role to play. If I clean out the synagogue's bathroom, I feel like I'm doing something good. I'm feeling like I'm doing something for the Jewish people who are eternal, who are God's chosen people. Right, this is part of my hero system. Now, I believe this is true. I believe this is uh, part of the, the, the divine will. But I, I recognize that I believe that this is true based on 
subjective leaps of faith. So I'm not going to argue subjective leaps of faith. We all have to take a subjective leap of faith to arrive at a hero system that provides our life with, with meaning and purpose. So there are all sorts of very, you know, effective tools out there that make your life better. And, and having a hero system is one of them. Having a religion frequently makes, makes your life better. Uh, doing a live stream, right? Doing a live stream can make your life better. You get to interact with people. You get to share hero systems. I get to share my delusions. You share your delusions. My delusions go up against your delusions. You know, we fight it all out. And if we think collectively, we will usually think more clearly. Let's get a little bit more from the podcast philosophers. Where the goal is to numb yourself from the terror of existence. And you could really do that with anything. I mean, you could do that with Pop-Tarts if you try hard enough. Last honorable mention is the tactic of fully immersing yourself in mundane day-to-day -day tasks. This is actually surprisingly common these days. The goal, Becker says, is keeping yourself busy all the time so that you never have to think too much about the meaning of life overall. Ernest Becker calls this tranquilizing ourselves in the trivial. But as so I don't know about you. Do you know people who are always frantically busy? Right? Why are so many people, you know, frantically busy above and beyond the actual demands of their life? Because it tranquilizes them against anxiety. I notice that many of the people I know who are most frantically busy, right, they also consistently overeat. Right? What happens when you fill your stomach with, with a lot of food? The blood rushes to your stomach and it reduces your anxiety or other people, you know, watch a lot of sports or frantically busy or they're, they're devoted to this or that cause, right? People want to drown their anxiety through, through these means. So if you can kind of understand what's happening, you can be ahead of the game, mate. As interesting as these examples would be to talk about, as a philosophical anthropologist, the real thing Becker wants to offer some clarity about is why society develops in the way that it does. And as far as he can tell, the vast majority of people facing this terror of impermanence and insignificance respond by engaging in a protest against their insignificance. They engage in what he calls a, quote, defiant creation of meaning, end quote. They set out on a hero's journey. He calls them cultural heroes, seeking out significance and permanence throughout their life all along the way, acting out what he calls an immortality project. Now, an immortality project is exactly what it sounds like. This is a project where the goal is to make you immortal, or at least a piece of yourself immortal. Let me explain. When the protagonist of this series creates a system of values and has a set of projects, the only reason that person even cares about creating a system of values is because they want to get rid of that feeling of existential dread where everything seems insignificant and impermanent. So there's not a huge difference when, when viewed in this perspective through religion or Pop-Tarts or other things that people do to try to get rid of their anxiety and, and feeling of insignificance. Now, there are more effective hero systems and you know, more productive hero systems than, than others. But uh, Christianity is another hero system. It's another way to ward off the, the feeling of insignificance. It's another way to feel like that you're connected to the eternal, that you have a cosmically special role to play. But Richard Spencer has his own hero systems. You don't think Richard Spencer believes that he plays a special role in the cosmos? Of course he does. And Rome and the rest of it will just be in ashes. And Yeah, every group, every hero system believes that it will be ultimately redeemed and shown to be the one true one.
right? There's no difference there between Christianity, Judaism, and a million other hero systems. There will be one central node. That is the claim of Christianity, which is right. There is no one claim of Christianity. There is no one Christianity. There's no mere Christianity. There are many Christianities, right? Christianity has been a vehicle for white racial identity. Christianity has been a vehicle for breaking down white racial identity. Christianity has been a vehicle for nationalism. Christianity has been a vehicle for globalism. None of these things are absolutely inherent in Christianity. It doesn't speak with one voice with regard to nation or the globe or race. Radically anti-nationalist at some level. You just can't get... Yeah, there are parts of Christianity that are anti-nationalist and there are parts of Christianity that are anti-globalist. There are parts of Christianity that are pro-nationalist. Uh, I mean, Richard's speaking like a Southern Baptist preacher. Now, why is he painting such a ridiculous portrait of Christianity? Because he is competing with Christianity for your attention and money. Get away from that. Um, so there is this, like, just obvious contradiction <laughs> between Christianity and nationalism. Yeah, and there are obvious contradictions in the things that uh, Richard Spencer says too, all right? Every hero system and every individual is filled with uh, contradictions. It's not uh, disqualifying. If you take the religion seriously... Oh, if you take the religion seriously, then you'll understand it as Richard Spencer does, right? Uh, the, the Christianity of 18th century rural England is very different from the Christianity of the Upper East Side of New York City today. Christianity is different in different times and different places with different adherents operating under different incentives. All we have are islands in the stream, right? All we have are situations. That is who we are. There's nothing in between. Sail away with me. And you don't just take it as kind of like both ways and, you know, oh, well, you know. You can take Christianity as folkways and as theology and as sociology and as poetry, and as literature, and a moral system. So just because you recognize there are folkways in Christianity or Judaism or in Shinto or in Hinduism doesn't mean that there aren't other layers of, of meaning. There is civic nationalism. You could be a civnat, a civic nationalist, and at the same time, there may well be a racial component to your nationalism that you don't feel is wise to express out loud, so you sublimate the, your racial nationalism and just talk as a civnat. At the same time, there's probably an ideological and a religious component to your nationalism. So which aspects of your nationalism or of your religion you choose to reveal at different times will depend upon the incentives that are operating at those different times and places. Uh, the, the, the rest of the world is pagan and we're keeping the light going. All of this is just kind of situational, circumstantial. That is all we have. Situations and circumstances. That is who we are. We're islands in the stream. There's nothing in between. Sail away with me. Understandings of Christianity. Christianity's real claim is something extremely different. Yeah, Richard Spence is going to tell us what Christianity's real claim is. Right? Christianity has many real claims, depending on the time and the circumstance. Christianity, all right, the people who founded what became known as Christianity, you know, did not expect to be around for the last 2,000 years. They expected to all go up to heaven with, with Jesus. Right? So the original followers of Jesus had a very different conception and very different claims than, say, the Pope today. And... Uh, the Pope prior to this Pope was quite different from the current Pope. 
So this is uh, Richard here talking with uh, Mark Brahman. Just Richard's consistently interesting. All right, Mark. Which is more than you can say for Mark. I'm doing very well. Good. With uh-huh. one with one qualification, actually. Uh huh. We're talking about Christian nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fascinating. Yeah. See, they're above Christian nationalism, right? So they find it a downer to have to get down into the gutter with you plebs talking about Christian nationalism because they know the real truth is Apolloism. And so they just find this so icky having to get down in the gutter and talk about Christian nationalism. They're so much smarter and wiser. And Christian nationalism is a perfectly understandable, reasonable response to an America where the left controls almost all its institutions. So if you simply want to hold on to some vestiges of, say, 1950s American Christianity, today you have to be a Christian nationalist. Right? In the 1950s, you didn't have to be a Christian nationalist, but times and circumstances have changed. Right? There's much more of a war on Christianity. The, the left has taken more vigorous control of our institutions. And so to simply hold on to some vestiges of traditional Christianity in America today, you always have to be a Christian nationalist. You have to think about Christian nationalists. Um, so I guess it's, it's, which is kind of bittersweet, I suppose. I get to critique them, but then I have to kind of think about them. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, to be fair, I I think you have to think about them to understand where we are right now. And yeah, terms come and go and they pick up new terms. They call themselves nationalists or patriots or the alt-right or whatever. Uh, But they're now calling themselves openly Christian nationalists. That is the, the American right writ large or the most salient maybe most extreme um, elements of it, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, followers of Trump, not quite Trump himself, although this has been said in his presence and he hasn't objected, but they are calling themselves Christian nationalists. And I, I think in a way that's the, their kind of end station, you know, it, it kind of, they try on some other identities, but they'll, they're, they're kind of destined to end up with this one for a number of different reasons. It's a real current. And I don't know. I mean, it's not my, I, I have mixed feelings about it in the sense that um, I think that, you know, I, I'm generally, I, I generally I'm an optimist. So, and I think that um, things on some level we could say, it's Christianity sort of in its death throes, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, it, that's, you know, you can be ambivalent about that. It's it's sort of a kind of sad thing on some level. Um, but it's, but I think that what we're going to see is that we're going to see it kind of like, um, you know, try to become a political thing in, in, in a very kind of explicit way. And I think that uh, it will, it's, it's sort of this serpent that eats its own tail in the sense that it's kind of like its own undoing is sort of designed into it. You know I mean? Because uh, creedally or, um, you know, Christian nationalism, it's a kind of oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It's a paradox. Um, And uh, so I think that we, we will see it, uh, you know, make its effort, but I think that it will be shown lacking ultimately is my feeling. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it may enjoy a kind of temporary uh, success, but I just, I, I don't see it ultimately going anywhere. And I think it, but I think it will open up 
useful conversations. Ultimately. Yeah. Well, let me say a couple of things. I, I think we should talk about what Christ nationalism might look like. And, and what I mean by that is um, Jesus himself, as we know him through the gospels, but also, you know, early Christianity and so on with Paul and with the, the early church. Um, but I, before that, I want to just talk about kind of where they, they are. That is the American right. Um, I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that ethno-nationalism or religious nationalism is in some ways most powerful when you don't need to talk about it. So yeah, because nationalism isn't primarily an ideological or intellectual commitment is primarily a mindset that you simply take for granted that you prefer your, your own people to other people. When I was growing up in Australia, right? If you weren't Australian, you just didn't count for much, right? That is nationalism, right? What matters is your group, right? So let's get a little bit more from the Philosophize This podcast explaining Ernest Becker's approach to hero systems. Permanent. In other words, they run from the fragility of their biological existence and then retreat purely into the symbolic side of their existence, the hope being that by carrying out their set of projects, their actions will immortalize their symbolic selves within human culture. The purpose of life to Becker then becomes to try to find a way to use your efforts in this life to serve society and leave a lasting impact long after your biological existence ends. This is as true of the Nobel laureate trying to find a cure to some disease as it is about the single mother of seven who just wants to make sure her kids go on to have a better life than she did. This is why people create great works of art. This is why people run marathons. This is why people do anything at all other than just sit around and get Cheeto fingers and fuse into a beanbag all day. And don't get me wrong here. Becker would no doubt be a fan of this self-aware, self-realized version of this defiant creation of meaning that we've been engaged in. He knew that he was writing this analysis of people living in the post-religious, post-God-is-dead world of Western modernity. He wouldn't be ashamed of using similar words to what other existentialist philosophers have used in their work. For example, when somebody becomes one of these cultural heroes engaged in an immortality project, part of what they're seeking, he says, is what you could call a type of power. And willing ourselves towards that power starts to sound almost like overcoming resistance. He says, quote, power means power to increase oneself, to change one's natural situation from one of smallness, helplessness, finitude, to one of bigness, control, durability, and importance, end quote. But here's the thing to remember. The implications of what Becker's saying about our denial of death go much further than just the individual, right? Because if what Becker is saying here is true of the individual, then it might be able to give us some level of insight into how we should be thinking about human culture overall. Human culture to Becker can be thought of as the conglomeration of millions of different immortality projects all working together. Human civilization can be seen in many ways as the reflexive response to our awareness of our own mortality. This is the collective game that we're all playing together. And think of what makes this game even work at all. Our societies rely on the fact that we aren't all going to be sitting around worrying about the fact we're going to die one day and that nothing really means anything on an objective level. So, human culture provides people with ready-made, pre-molded societal roles to fall into. 
Right, and so society gives us roles. When we play them, we feel heroic, and life starts to work. Now, what happens when your delusions are contradicted by other people's delusions? So what your life becomes as you interact with other people and go on about your life is the ongoing process of your set of illusions coming into contact with other people's sets of illusions. And most of the time, your illusions are going to line up nicely with other people's. You guys can roast marshmallows and do whatever it is you're going to do. Everything's going to be fine. But sometimes one person's set of illusions becomes mutually exclusive to another person's set of illusions. Sometimes a person will run into somebody and they're having a conversation with them and they have this moment of realization where if what the other person is saying here is actually true, then it calls into question the core of my identity. It calls into question the core of my existence. If what this other person is saying is true, then my symbolic existence is no longer legitimate. But remember, the symbolic existence is all that we have left after our denial of death. So what Becker is really saying here is that when someone sufficiently calls into question our set of illusions, it feels to us as though it's become a matter of life and death. And this, of course, extends beyond just ourselves directly to our in-groups, our families, our countries, our religions, our political groups, any entity that people work to make sure lives on long after they die and they feel threatened if it doesn't. Becker says, quote, no wonder men go into a rage over the fine points of belief. If your adversary wins the argument about truth, you die. Your immortality system has been shown to be fallible. Your life becomes fallible. History, then, can be understood as a succession of ideologies that console for death, end quote. What he's saying here is an important point to emphasize further, because part of the strength of Becker's analysis here is that it is not just a theodicy. It's not merely an explanation for why God allows people to do evil things sometimes. Becker's anthropodicy can explain hostility between people on many different levels of severity. Because regardless of the stakes, whether it's a declaration of war, all the way down to just a heated... Right, so sometimes we hate other people because we have a vital clash of interests, and it's a zero-sum situation. But sometimes we, we hate other people because our illusions are challenged or, or threatened by their illusions. So, John Mearsheimer published an important essay in Foreign Policy magazine that I want to discuss. All right, Foreign Affairs magazine. He notes we're, we're risking World War Three in Ukraine, and he notes the kind of the crazy situation we're in, where the Biden administration appears to have no interest in settling this this conflict in, in Ukraine. Right, and it could very well spill into World War Three, but people in charge in the West feel, hey, we're in a prolonged stalemate. Eventually, a weakened Russia will just accept a peace agreement that favors the United States and NATO and Ukraine. But at any time, either side may begin to escalate to try to gain an advantage or to prevent a defeat. And the conventional wisdom is, oh, catastrophe, that can just be avoided, right? And no one's talking about that American forces may very easily become directly involved in the fighting. People aren't talking much about Russia daring to use nuclear weapons, but it's a strong possibility, right? The Biden administration, NATO, the West and its allies are just way too cavalier, right? Now, we may avoid disastrous escalation, but that's far from certain, right? The risk of a disastrous escalation is far greater than the conventional wisdom holds. It is far greater than what the New York Times and NBC News is telling you. And when we're talking escalation here, we're talking about nuclear annihilation, right? 
we're, we're talking very possibly about the deaths of billions of people, possibly the end of life on Earth. You'd think that that would get you know, a little bit of attention. The Ukraine war is the most serious threat to life on Earth in decades. Right? So... The war began at the end of February, and since then, steadily, Moscow and Washington have kept raising their ambitions. All right? This war has become sacred. It's much harder to settle conflicts when they become sacred. Right? Both sides are ever more deeply committed to winning this war and achieving their formidable political aims. So each side has ever-increasingly more powerful incentives to find ways to prevail and to avoid losing. All right? So... The United States might well join the fighting if it is desperate to prevent Ukraine from losing. Russia might use nuclear weapons if it is desperate to win or faces imminent defeat, right? which would happen if U.S. forces join the, the fighting. So given that this has become a sacred conflict, right, there's little chance right now of meaningful compromise. You've got both Washington and Moscow thinking in maximal terms it's ever more important to them that their side wins on the battlefield so it can dictate the terms of the eventual peace. So we have a complete absence of possible diplomatic solutions. So each side is getting more and more incentives to climb up the escalation ladder. And what lies up the escalation ladder is a level of death and destruction that would exceed World War II. We're talking billions of people. We're possibly talking about the end of life on Earth. So the Biden administration had no interest in trying to prevent this war because the Biden administration saw that they could, one, hold themselves up in domestic politics, that this would make Joe Biden look good. It would improve his popularity. We're risking World War III so that Joe Biden can feel and look like a tough guy. And the second priority is to try to knock Russia out of the ranks of the great powers. And the United States has increasingly tied its own reputation to the outcome of this conflict. They have made it sacred. So U.S. President Joe Biden has called Russia's war on Ukraine a genocide. He's accused Vladimir Putin of being a war criminal who should face a war crimes trial. Right? So these proclamations make it near impossible for Washington to, to back down. So if Russia prevails, the U.S. is going to look stupid. At the same time, Russia's expansions ambitions have also expanded. Right? He was f primarily concerned at the beginning with just preventing Ukraine from becoming a Western bulwark on Russia's border. But now, Russia has more ambition. Its territorial goals have expanded markedly since the war. This war started, so. Biden wants to roll back Russia's territorial gains in Ukraine and permanently cripple Russian power. And Finland and Sweden have joined NATO. Ukraine is better armed. It's more closely allied with the West. So Moscow cannot afford to lose in Ukraine. It will use every means available to avoid defeat. That includes nuclear weapons. And uh, we saw... We saw Russian propagandists talking about this today. The disagreement at the dinner table... When one person's set of illusions is at large against another's, there is no official due process to mediate that situation. When somebody's symbolic identity is called into question, their very existence is called into question. And that could be anything. That could be two people in the Walmart parking lot arguing over a container of Chili Mac from the deli. 
That could be two friends intensely debating important political issues. That could be your parents screaming at each other in the middle of the night. All these can seem confusing to an outsider. And it can be easy to misread the situation that's going on. It can be easy to think that these people who are arguing, they just disagree about the issues here. Why are they getting so mad about everything? But it goes much deeper than that. To some people, it starts to feel like a matter of life and death. To put a gun to the head of my illusions and to pull the trigger becomes an act of murder. And again to Becker, no wonder we see otherwise perfectly reasonable people that are so willing to dehumanize and silence another group of people whose beliefs threaten their symbolic identity. No wonder we see people out of fear allowing themselves to be molded by people in media who financially benefit from that systematic division. No wonder. Okay, here we got Russian propagandists threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and introduce troops to protect the Russian-speaking population. That's 40% of Latvia. Will NATO countries hesitate? Berlin, Berlin Paris, London, Paris, Brussels. Are you ready to burn? Ready to burn. Right, he's threatening rocket strikes and tactical nuclear weapons. Ready to burn from our missiles. From the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Right? This is a leading Russian propagandist warning about using tactical weapons. Is America ready to go into battle for the Baltic countries in their Nazi frenzies and violate the, the rights of uh, Russian speakers? So... You're, you're shelling this nuclear plant. You're yelling that the Russians are shelling it themselves. This is a top propagandist accusing Ukraine of shelling a Russian nuclear power plant. And says that Russia will keep fighting even in the event of radioactive contamination. So we've got Kiev, Washington, Moscow, all deeply committed to winning at the expense of their adversary. It's a sacred conf conflict, little room for compromise. We've got catastrophic escalation that seems to be built into this protracted war in Ukraine. So there are three basic routes to escalation that's inherent in the conduct of war. So one or both sides deliberately escalate to win. One or both sides deliberately escalate to not lose. Or the fighting escalates not by deliberate choice, but inadvertently. So each pathway holds the potential to make this fight nuclear. So a likely scenario for U.S. intervention would come about if the Ukrainian army began to collapse and Russia was verging on a major victory. Right? The Biden administration would not allow that because that would make Biden look bad. So to shore up Biden's popularity and the Democrats' standing, we could very well see the use of the American military going up directly against Russia. There are three circumstances in which Putin might use nuclear weapons. The first would be if the U.S. and its NATO allies entered the fight. So that would markedly shift the military balance against Russia, greatly increase the likelihood of its defeat. It would mean that Russia was fighting a great power war on its own doorstep that could easily spill into its own territory. So Russian leaders would naturally think our survival is at risk here. That would give them a powerful incentive to use nuclear weapons to rescue the situation. They would, at the minimum, consider demonstration strikes intended to convince the West to back off. Second nuclear scenario, Ukraine turns the tide on the battlefield by itself without direct U.S. involvement. And if Ukrainian forces are poised to defeat the Russian army and take back their country's lost territory, Moscow could easily view this as an existential threat that requires a nuclear response. 
So nationalism encourages modern wars to escalate to their most extreme form, especially when the stakes are high for both sides. Wars can be kept limited, but that's not easy. And so the staggering costs of great power nuclear war, even, even the small chance of it occurring, should make everyone think about where this conflict is headed. So the Biden administration should have worked out with Russia to settle the Ukraine crisis way before the war broke out. It's now too late to strike a deal. Russia, Ukraine, and the West are stuck in an awful situation. There's no obvious way out, and uh, we are risking World War Three. Becker thinks that if you were to sit someone down and you were to ask them to recount the most meaningful moments of their lives, the greatest moments of triumph that they've ever had, all too frequently, the moments that they're going to mention came about when they were in some sort of conflict with other people, when their set of illusions triumphed over another set of illusions. Becker's going to ask, what does that say about us as human beings? Where do these evil acts truly originate from? Are there just evil babies being born out there? Is all evil just some variation of mental illness? Was Socrates right in saying that all evil is born of ignorance? None of these theories are a sufficient answer to the question to Becker. The reality about the senseless killing of other people, he says, is that we often kill out of joy. People kill like they're wiping off the counter at their house. They feel satisfied after having done it. Point is, not everybody who kills in the name of some set of illusions was born an evil mustachioed baby when they flew out of the birth canal. He says, quote, the man who dropped the atomic bomb is the warm, gentle boy who grew up next door, end quote. Becker would want us to consider that sometimes the things we think are the most valorous to another person in another situation, those exact same acts are of equal magnitudes heinous and delusional. And once again, it's important to remember that this dehumanization manifests on many different levels of intensity, sometimes within the very institutions that we hold dear within society. For example, there was a group of scientists that did a set of studies setting out to test the theories of Becker's work. The hypothesis was simple. Okay. That. These roles pull them out of the unproductive state of neurotic terror they'd otherwise be in, and then these roles give people the illusion of significance and permanence. What Becker is saying is that we learn to identify ourselves and our values based on the categories that our culture gives us to work with. Where else would we get them? We don't just pull random categories of identity out of thin air. We say things like, I'm a homeowner. I'm a ballet dancer. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a blue-collar worker. We say this stuff, but what you really are, though, is a collection of illusions. Illusions you appropriate from the culture you live in that make you feel significant and permanent because they allow you to attach yourself to cultural ideals. Let me get right. So about the deepest need that we have after we meet our need for food, clothing and shelter is the need for meaning and the need to feel significant. And that can come from religion, often uh, come in a healthy or an unhealthy way. It can come from hobbies. It can come from live streaming. Here's uh, Richard and Mark talking about Christian nationalism. These forces, but I mean, the radical claim of Judaism and Christ, and Christ is a Jew, is globalism. No, it's one claim among many white privilege that, you know, those particular texts, you can find just as many other texts promoting a, a national identity. I mean, it is on, it is one day all knees shall bend to this king of kings. And Rome and the rest of it will just be in ashes, and there will be one central note. That is the claim of Christianity. 
which is radically anti-nationalist on some level. You just can't get away from that. Um, so you can't get away from that. You can find plenty in, in Christianity and Judaism praising the tribe, praising, identifying with a particular people. Uh, so this this essentializing Christianity that there's a mere Christianity is just bogus. Christianity is different in different times and places, as is Judaism. Sephardic Jews have created a very different culture from Ashkenazi Jews. And Ashkenazi Jews have created a very different culture and, and ways of, of thinking uh, about life compared to Falashian Jews from Ethiopia. So there is this, like, just obvious contradiction between Christianity and nationalism if you take the religion seriously and you don't just take it as kind of like folk ways and, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, the rest of the world is pagan and we're keeping the light going. All of this is just kind of situational, circumstantial understandings of Christianity. Christianity's real claim is something extremely different than that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, and I, it's unclear how conscious it is or how unconscious it is, but um, I mean, it, it's evident that uh, Christians adapt. I, I mean, there's no humility here. It's like his, 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 his Richard and Mark talking about what is true Christianity, neither of them practice it. I don't think either of them have ever practiced it. They're like entologists, like those people who study insects, like poking insects and saying, oh, you're all very interesting but I'd never want to be one of you, right? There are some mysteries that are only available to those in the dance, right? There are some things that you can only understand about Christianity from the inside by practicing it. And same with Orthodox Judaism or Islam. So the, this, this, this show here by Richard and Mark is severely lacking in humility. To, you know, the boomers who are like 67% or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you see general, generationally it's losing steam among whites, right? In a very rapid, very rapid way, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I would just add, I, I do think that the rapidity of, I won't call it atheism exactly, but, but just that being unchurched, God dying, being turned off by Christianity is outpacing the kind of, the, the birth rate issue that, um, that you know that that Ed Dudden brings up, of course, but but many other people bring up, which is also very true. Um, which is that uh, you know being a secular humanist is kind of going into a certain kind of sterility, and um, Christianity remains a fertility cult to some extent. And there is a you know I, I even within Christianity uh, to, to some extent. I mean, there's no one monolithic Christianity. Uh, some Sometimes Christianity is, you know, encouraging of uh, people, you know, get, getting married and having kids. But there are many forms of Christianity with a below replacement uh, birth rate. So, this this labeling of you know certain essential qualities of Christianity, such as you know a, a fertility cult, is just nonsense. Or it's you know a globalist uh, agenda. Again, nonsense. Parts of it, yeah. Not the whole thing. There's no essential. I mean, I, I, I think the, um, it's like for every one baby an Episcopalian has, a Southern Baptist has two and a half. Or, there's, some, there's statistics like this that are very real and very true. But I think the death of God is also a kind of secular overhang where even those like, 
you know, young evangelicals are are moving away from being churched and they're moving away from being um, fanatical, at least in that extent. So that kind of like large secular trend is affecting everyone. But I don't know how people can continue to look at like Gen Z as they're so, they're, this is the base generation. It's a hyper-polarized generation. That's clear. And so they're going to have like, more extreme Catholics or whatever than as a percentage than among uh, the silent gen or something. I mean, I, I would agree with that, but like overall, like this general secularization trend, if we want to use that is just fundamental. And, and also just a, a fertility trend, um, even like as Christianity, as a fertility cult, like the, the most dominant trend, it's almost a law in demographics is modernization leading to less children. Well, it depends where you live. If you live in the city, yeah, it's much more expensive to have kids. If you live in the country, not nearly so much. So there are some states with an above replacement birth rate and there are other places that, that don't. There are a lot of circumstances that play in here beyond uh, one's, you know, theology. Uh, back in two, 2014, I mean, it's it's kind of long forgotten now, but back in 2014, um, I was working with some, collaborating with some uh, uh, people at Arto. So we kind of got this conference going on where there, there would be a lot of, you know, interesting figures coming together in Budapest. And, and so it was, it was, you know, I hosted a number of conferences. So let me guess here, right? Richard Spence has been kicked out of 109 countries, but he never did anything wrong. Right. Richard Spencer faced this or that humiliation, but he never did anything wrong. There's nothing about his own conduct that he needs to examine. Previous to that, but I, we were doing one in Europe and so on. And uh, I, I think also Budapest wasn't, um, it wasn't just a coincidence that it was in Budapest, or it wasn't just the fact that that's a, a central Europe, European hub. Um, you know, Viktor Orban was kind of looked on as a, well, you know, this is a cool right-wing leader, a lot like the fascination with Putin. Um, you know, look at this cool guy. Yeah, the the left calls him an autocrat, but he's based and and what so have you, what have you. Well, as it turns out, um, Victor Orban. Hey, no more person would be inspired by the way Victor Orban stands up for his own people when the nations surrounding him are happy to invite in you know millions of people from the Middle East. You know, Victor Orban wants to stand out for his own people. It's not complicated why many people would resonate with that. And was not at all pleased to have um, a right-wing controversial event in his country even though oh so was there anything that you did or say was there anything that you said richard was there anything you did was there anything about you that uh, may have led to you being kicked out of 109 countries we were not engaging in activism of any kind we were effectively tourists so you i think you were the only one on that trip who was arrested so does that say anything about you did you make any choices did you engage in any behavior? Did you develop a certain reputation that led to this? Or are these just unfortunate circumstances that just happened to you? Like with, with uh, Claire Kors, like people are always falling out with her. And it just happens to her through absolutely no fault of her own. Claire Kors never did anything wrong. She was kicked off 109 different podcasts, but she never did anything wrong. Entering law-abiding tourist entering his country to host a conference. And he's got... Yeah, that's Richard Spencer, just a law-abiding tourist entering his country for, for noble and holy reasons. And then for absolutely no reason whatsoever, he gets arrested. Uh, you know, everyone was there. He put me in jail for a weekend at a kind of detention center, which, uh, you know, not, not 
terribly dangerous or well, not dangerous at all, to be honest, or there was no abuse of me, but it, it was still the uh, hard hand of the law <laughs> came down on me. Um, but, you know, it's, it's fascinating that where I, whereas I failed or I was too, you know, outrageous for Victor Orban or, or what have you. Um, yeah, Richard was just he was just too flamboyant for Victor Orban. He was just too outrageous. He was just too edgy. He, he was a good boy. Richard was getting his life together. Right? He's been kicked out of 109 countries. All right. Be, being kicked out of 109 events. But uh, he never did anything wrong. Just a good boy, an aspiring rapper, just, just getting his life together. And, and strange that Viktor Orban just found him too flamboyant. That, that fascination with Orban has continued. And, you, and where I failed, the conservatives have succeeded. And, and I wonder why that is. Does that, does that say anything about you? Does that say anything about conservatives? Maybe they were more savvy. Maybe they made better decisions. And so Viktor Orban has done his own outreach to uh, Christian nationalist intellectuals. Um, Rod Dreher being being one, and who's lived there. Yeah, Rod Dreher and Viktor Orban are effective, right? So Richard is tremendously entertaining. He is terribly ineffective as a political, social, or cultural, or organizational leader, right? He's great fun to watch on a live stream, but uh, not very effective, right? So, And, you know, it's just this willingness to misrepresent something and this also a very, you know. Yeah, if you want to be effective, if you want to get people on your side, sometimes you have to misrepresent things, right? You don't get to just be pure, just an intellectual sitting back and, and uh, dispensing red pills, right? Often to be effective in the world, you have to misrepresent. You have to spin. Strong tendency among Christians um, which is to kind of engage in these like no true Scotsman fallacies or, you know, Christianity has always been like this. It's never been racist. Uh, Richard's just been engaging this whole stream in no true Scotsman fallacy. So what's the no true Scotsman fallacy is to say no true Scotsman uh, would uh, drink to excess. So Richard's just gone through the whole stream ascribing all sorts of essential qualities to, to being a Christian. And uh, but when he spots someone else you know, practicing the, the no true Scotsman fallacy, then he's going to jump on that. It, you know, a true Christian cannot be racist. And, and, and that's kind of true in an ironic way, I guess. But this, that's obviously not what he meant. He was speak, Orban was speaking off the cuff. He clearly is an ethno-nationalist. It's fine. Um, just don't try to claim that what he means is, uh, is you know, some kind of religious, you know, airy theoretical concept. People can love their people. And that love can have many dimensions. There can be a racial component. There can be a geographic component. There can be a cultural component. There can be a religious component. There can be an ideological component. So just because you're a Civ Nat doesn't mean that you don't also have a racial or a religious component to your nationalism. So Richard wants to reduce these things to just certain essential qualities when they are more contingent. Contingent meaning depending upon. It has all of these contradictions and it, it, it gains power from its contradictions in a way. Um, and, and obviously, you know, it is a claim towards globalism. It is a claim to monotheism, one way for all mankind and one God. Um, but on another level, it, it also is a anti-imperial religion. And I, of course, am not trying to deny the fact that there is, first off, that there's a kind of built-in imperialism within monotheism, like we're going to make everyone one. 
I, I agree with that. Well, and, and it can be used in that way. And I also am, am, am not historically blind, and I don't recognize when Christianity is a kind of faith of ex, ex- Yeah, there are imperial aspects to Christianity, right? And there are nationalist and communitarian aspects to Christianity. Imperialism isn't inherent to Christianity or to Judaism, right? Sometimes imperial actions are in your people's best interests, right? Sometimes to survive in a harsh and frequently cruel world, you have to expand. Other times it's more prudent to retreat. Other times it's more prudent to stay within your borders, right? Circumstances dictate whether the most adaptive approach is to be a nationalist or is it to be a federalist and to devolve you know, maximum power to various communities. Sometimes the adaptive response to a trying set of circumstances is to be imperialistic. Other times it's to be spiritual and spiritualize everything. Right? It's not like there's one approach, imperialism, nationalism, federalism, spiritualism, religion, you know, understanding things psychologically. There's not one approach that's going to be the best approach in all different circumstances for all people. Exploration, conquest, empire, etc. It obviously has functioned in that capacity and it can function because it can, as Paul said, be all things to all people. It can be can be the tool. So Claire Cor says, I'm rather keen on discussing theology these days. So why don't you list in the chat, Claire, the last uh, five books you've read on theology? Tool at hand that you need for the current purpose or desire. Um, but I, I do think that there is a kind of like my point is that when I talked to you last, you mentioned that you don't read books anymore. So you're keen to discuss theology, but you're not willing to do, you know, the elementary work of, say, a you know, 12-year-old who wants to learn about theology. They'd go read a book. Built-in anti-empire sentiment that is very Jewish in a way. And, um, you know... There are aspects of Jewish and Christian and Muslim identity that is pro-empire. There are other aspects that are anti-empire. There's not one inherent, you know, one true form of Christianity, Judaism, or Islam with regard to complicated matters like globalism or empire. Right? The, the, the way that people react depends on circumstances. Depends on incentives. The National Socialist out of Christian duty. And, you know, apparently his final words were, you know, long live holy Germany. So, I mean, he, he was, um, you know, a national, a Christian nationalist, on a, he was a Catholic. Um, and yeah, the, these things aren't, you know. Uh, Is Andrew Anglin identifying as a Christian or a Christian nationalist these days? Coincidence uh, in, you know, in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, one thing it's, that's interesting about the Fuentes people is that, I, I did notice that, you know, if you look back at the whole journey from like 2017 to say 2020, um, it, at, at the first, in 2017, it was- uh, Claire Cross says, I don't need to read books to have a theological discussion. You don't. You only need to read books if you are going to have something useful or important to say. I mean, you can talk about any topic you want, but obviously you're not willing to do elementary work that uh, would give you a basis for having something interesting to say. So, I mean, you can indulge yourself, you can watch TV or live streams all day long and uh, still talk about theology. It's just that you're coming from a place of ignorance. So, I mean, some people would love to talk to you about those things. Uh, I, I generally prefer to talk to people who do some work, who engage in the hard, hard yakka, to use an Aussie expression of actually reading a book. 
kind of like, I love the alt-right. I agree with everything about the alt-right, but we just need better optics. And optics meant flag-waving and basically being a conservative and being a Trump and never criticizing Trump also. Uh, Claire Cause says, it doesn't sound like Luke wants to discuss anything with me. I mean, go read 20, 30, 40 books. Uh, I mean, over the past... Over the past month, I've read 20 books, all right? I, I do the work. It's like someone who plays in the NFL and then, you know, some some middle-aged dude who doesn't train, doesn't do anything to develop himself saying, oh, I want to play football with you, man. Right? This is the big leagues, all right? I do the work. I about read a book a day. And it's just boring to talk to people who don't do the work. Until they did, but... They certainly didn't do that in 2020. So it was kind of like, we are the alt-right, but we just need to be, you know, we, we can't be an independent force, really. We, we've got to look to Trump as the leader and fall, make, follow him. But there was no real, like, criticism from Fuentes or, I guess, ironically, you know, Weave or Andrew Anglin or something that, like, the alt Richard Spencer is wrong or the alt-right's wrong. It's just like, oh, we've got the better strategy here, guys. Um, but what's interesting is the by 2020, they, it had become entirely conservative, <laughs> And, you know, I, I think you were actually visiting me out here in Montana one point, and we were talking about just the, the history of the alt-right. And I think you and I, for the first time in years, we visited Andrew Anglin's website, The Daily Stormer. And what was so remarkable about it was that every blog post was about vaccines. <laughs> you know, so you have this ostensibly neo-Nazi website, and, but if you, you know, ignored some of the language in the, in the blog post or ignored the title it would just read like a Joe Rogan thing, like vaccine skepticism type thing. And um, I found that remarkable. And you can kind of make different things about that. Are they, are they trying to outreach to those people and get, get them to become Nazis? Or, or is it actually something else going on? Whatever. Or is it just going for clicks? A lot of different interpretations there. But it is kind of interesting that now that the, the COVID controversy has, has died down you know, by, a, by a lot, no one's talking about vaccine mandates anymore you know it's it's over in effect um they're they're now christian nationalists and passionately so including andrew england you know the biggest baddest craziest neo-nazi on the internet is a christian nationalist as he understands himself so it's this weird kind of way where they start out with optics and they but they they kind of end up even though they might be called nazis by their detractors sure they they, they just kind of like ultimately end up as ideologically at least indistinguishable from marjorie taylor green or Joe Rogan, maybe not Joe Rogan exactly, but you know who I'm talking about, the Joe Rogan type. They just, they ultimately become that thing that seemingly at least was, was a kind of... Well, what's more important, principles or interests? All right, the people that, uh, that Richard is de decrying here, maybe they have things that are more important to them than ideology. Maybe they have things that are more important to them than philosophy. Maybe they have interests. Maybe they care about a particular people. If you care about a particular people, you're going to be flexible to be more effective in promoting their interests, right? There are things far more important in life than ideological consistency and uh, philosophical purity. So Christian nationalism would seem absolutely bizarre in 1950s America. In 2022 America, you about as a Christian have to be a Christian nationalist if you're going to hold on to what's important to you circumstances change and wise people adapt to, to the circumstances that they are thrust into
right? So Richard wants to privilege certain texts over other texts. And so, you know, just these certain texts from the Bible, those are the ultimate reality. That's the, the transcendent truth about Christianity. And he operates as though there's nothing that mediates these texts, that these texts are just outstanding outside of history. But all texts are written in history by people reacting to incentives, written at a certain time, certain place, by people with certain life experiences, speaking to other people. Right? Religion's not just theory. Right? You just don't have these transcendent texts that, that operate outside of history unless you want to make a faith statement that uh, the, these texts came from God. And I'm happy with that, but that's a faith statement based on, on a leap of faith and then you know, just label it so. Christian nationalism is not an end station, right? There is no end station beyond surviving, uh, taking care of the people you love, and uh, trying to fight off feelings of anxiety and insignificance, all right? Christian nationalism is very possibly an adaptive response to a situation that Americans find themselves in in 2022, but people's circumstances and conditions are constantly changing. People develop ideologies in large part in response to these changing circumstances and conditions. Christian nationalism is an increasingly talked about ideology that people are using to try to protect that which is sacred to them. Right? Texts and you know, essential religious, philosophical, theological ideas don't exist outside of history. They bubble up inside of history. Right? Ideas and texts are produced in history by people Right? reacting to incentives and to forces that are operating on them and their community. And they can't be understood outside of history unless you want to take that non-rational leap of faith. So Christian nationalism is like Arab nationalism or Jewish nationalism or Japanese nationalism. It is a collective response of people at a certain time and place, and is frequently an adaptive response, though in other circumstances it will be a maladaptive response. Sometimes if you engage in it mildly to moderately, that counts as an adaptive response. But if you go over the top with it so that you unnecessarily alienate people, then it becomes maladaptive, like many other things. Uh, you can practice Orthodox Judaism in an adaptive response where it helps you get along with people, or you can practice it in a way that makes you a total jerk and alienates you from other people. So there's no inherent rational basis for just pri privileging the globalist sentiments in Judaism or Christianity over the nationalist sentiments. There's no basis for privileging the anti-political sentiments in Christianity versus the political or the otherworldly versus the worldly. Christianity is infinitely flexible. Sometimes it's nationalist, anti-globalist, political, and this-worldly. It's just weird to hear Richard and Mark Brahman, without any humility, pronouncing with great certitude on what is sound Christianity. I mean, they understand the true Christianity, but there is no true Christianity, true Judaism, right? There's no mere Christianity. All you have in history are various manifestations of people identifying as Christian or Jewish and believing and acting in many radically different ways in reaction to their circumstances. Everything is contingent. It depends upon the context, the situation, and the incentives. I mean, Mark Brahman talks about what Christianity was intended to be. Well, it wasn't intended to be a religion. It was intended to be a group of people who are getting ready to go up to heaven with Jesus 2,000 years ago. But over time, Christianity outcompeted the Greco-Roman world. It outcompeted Judaism. Why? Why did Christianity become such a power in the world? Because it was more effective at meeting people's needs than the alternatives. 
Why has Christianity declined in power over the past 200 years? Because it's become less effective at meeting people's needs and the alternatives. So from a secular perspective, the primary purpose of religion is to provide comfort. And over the past 100 years in particular, people increasingly find comfort not from religion, but from psychotherapy, from psychiatric medications, from music, from popular entertainment, from highbrow entertainment, from pursuing their hobbies and interests. All right? So when religion meets needs better than alternatives, people will flock to religion. When alternatives spring up that better, people, better meet people's needs, then people will leave religion. So all we have are discrete situations. We're islands in the stream. That is what we are. No one in between. How can we be wrong? Right, let's get a little bit more on Ernest Becker. Give an example of this. Imagine I decide to fall into the societal role of a mime. Born and raised into a family of people that talked way too much, and I rebelled against my stepdad, and the, the mime life chose me. That becomes the cultural ideal that I embody. Now, Becker would say, falling into that pre-molded, socially accepted role brings me a lot of comfort. For one, I feel significant and individuated, because now I'm not just some random, shapeless being. I'm a mime now. I provide a service to culture at large. I mean, people love me. People love me. When I go out into the streets and I start miming, making everybody feel a mixture of impressed but slightly uncomfortable, that's money in the bank right there for me. I, I right, just substitute miming for doing live streams. Right, Live streams gives me a whole new sense of identity. It gives me a community. Right, It gives me a feeling of significance. I have an identity now. More than that, though, being a mime answers a lot of questions I might otherwise have about my existence. For example, I can model myself after the similar values, projects, and rituals of all the other mimes that have carved out a path for me. When people talk about me at my funeral, when all my mime friends are clocked out for the day and they can actually start talking, they will always remember me as a mime. He was a good mime. Salt of the earth mime he was. And like all the mimes who came before me and all the mimes that are yet to be born, I become one small, individuated, significant part of some sort of continuum of the cultural ideal of a mime. There's permanence to that. I become part of something bigger than just me there. Now replace mime with any societal role that people may fall into, any illusion that people create just to manufacture significance and meaning. What our lives become is a collection of convenient illusions that make us feel once again bigger more in control, more durable, and more important than we actually are. But Becker would want to be clear about something here. Whether or not there actually is any level of ultimate cosmic importance to these illusions we come up with, we definitely need these illusions. Becker uses the word illusions. Okay, so a question like, what are, what are the last theological books that I've read? I don't actually have that much of an interest in theology, but touching on theology, this is what I've been reading, Jews and the American Soul. Human Nature in the 20th Century. Excellent book by Andrew Hines, H-E-I-N-Z-E. -E. So this is a book that I'm rereading. Love, love this book. And it's sequel, Jews in the American Academy, The Dynamics of Intellectual Assimilation by a lesbian, Suzanne Klingenstein. And then the sequel, which they're both superb. Enlarging America, the cultural work of Jewish literary scholars, 1930 to 1990. Then I've been reading Judaism 
and psychology meeting points so where are the meeting points between judaism and psychology by aaron rabinowitz i've been rereading for the fifth time changing the immutable how orthodox judaism rewrites rewrites its history now i prefer to read ebooks these are just the hardcover books that i've been reading okay Great book by UCLA professor David Myers, Resisting History, Historicism and Its Discontents in German Jewish Thought. So this is about historicism at the fin de siècle, the turn of the century, Resisting History by David Myers. I've been rereading The Limits of Orthodox Theology, Maimonides' 13 Principles, reappraised by Mark Shapiro. The Limits of Orthodox Theology, Maimonides' 13 Principles, reappraised. I just received a copy of a new translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the English Koran Tanakh. Tanakh meaning the Hebrew Bible is translated by the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And uh, it's got you know a lot of commentaries. It's got maps. It's got illustrations. So I was just sent this review copy about a month ago. So those are some of the things on my reading table even though I'm actually not that interested in theology. But the interesting thing is that he's not saying that word as a pejorative. He also calls these illusions necessary lies, or a, quote, necessary and basic dishonesty about oneself and one's whole situation, end quote. And what he means is that we need these lies because, again, if we didn't have them, people wouldn't be able to function, society wouldn't be able to continue, and most of us would live in a state of constant neurotic terror. We need illusions. Look, there is nothing about being a homo sapien that guarantees you any hope of being able to comprehend the complexity of the universe. There's no promises there, which is also to say that the natural state of the universe may be way too much for our monkey brains to handle. Most likely is. And because of this, we need to be able to take the overwhelming level of natural complexity and break it down into supernatural illusions that are, yes, human constructions, but are at the very least comprehensible and meaningful to us. Now, you can imagine somebody hearing Becker's analysis here, and they might start to feel a little bit hopeless about their own personal situation. They may think, Becker's right. All these ways that we immerse ourselves in culture and create systems of meaning, they're all just illusions. Hum right, so I create meaning. I have a hero system, right? Key part of my hero system is the 12-step the approach to life, right, where you recover by making yourself useful to other people joining a community and sharing stories about how you've overcome a particular compulsion or addiction and then sponsoring others getting sponsored by other people uh, developing tools principles steps traditions concepts that uh, help one lead a more productive life so this is a hero system of mine i feel heroic because i sponsor between half a dozen and a dozen people. I have regular set times. I also get text messages, phone calls, emails from, from sponsees, other people in program. I feel useful. I feel heroic. I feel like I'm doing good things in the world by helping other people who deal with the same sort of uh, compulsions and addictions that have destroyed my life. So for example, the capacity to make wise decisions with regard to sex and love and relationships does not abide in me. I've never been able to sustain a romantic relationship longer than a year. My, my love life has been a big, hot, wet mess. Uh, also, I've struggled with credit card debt at times. 
So when I wrote my first book, A History of X, 100 Years of Sex in Film, I maxed out my credit cards to about the rate of $20,000. It took me about three years to pay them off. You know, I lived off the credit cards for, for a year so I could just research and write the book. But uh, then I was kind of strangled by the credit card debt for three years. Then in 2009, I ran up my credit cards again to train to be an Alexander Technique teacher. And for about 10 years, I was operating with over $50,000 in credit card debt. And then I settled down, find, found the right 12-step program in 2015 that, that deals with these sort of things. And by 2018, I was completely out of debt. And now you know, turned my, my life around in those areas. So I have a hero system whereby if I help people who have similar problems that I've had, that makes me feel better. That makes me feel heroic. So, for example, I had a sponsor who told me to pick up two pieces of trash every day. So when I go out and I pick up two pieces of trash every day, I feel heroic. I feel like I'm making Los Angeles and Beverly Hills cleaner places. Also, I feel like I'm doing a good thing in that I'm taking direction from someone else who has suffered from the same things that I have suffered from and has achieved considerable recovery from those things. So by opening myself up to taking direction from other people, I'm doing a good thing. And each day when I just pick up some trash, I'm remembering that, that direction from my sponsor. And so that's part of my hero system that I'm following in the footsteps of people wiser than me. Then I, I pass on things from my own experience to other people if I think it might be useful. And so if I get to play a role in helping someone else you know, make progress with a self-defeating compulsion, right? That makes me feel heroic. I'm also an Orthodox Jew. I believe in God. I believe that the Jews are God's chosen people. I believe that, that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, right? I have, you know, a an Orthodox Jewish hero system that I subscribe to. I feel like I am connected to an eternal people by virtue of my converting into the tribe. So this is my a key part of my hero system. I also like many aspects of the enlightenment. I, I don't believe with the enlightenment that people are basically good, but I love the pursuit of truth wherever it leads. So I, I also love the, the practice of, of journalism. So when I can do some good reporting or I admire good reporting in, in other people. So a good, brave reporter, that is uh, another part of my hero system. I think, oh man, that, that person's so brave. They're exposing something that needs to be exposed. All right, that's heroic, right? When I when I do good good reporting, I also feel heroic, right? So these are all ways of warding off anxiety and warding off feelings of insignificance by connecting yourself with with causes and people that you regard as transcendent and eternal. Human constructions by people afraid of their own insignificance and impermanence. This person may say, "My problem is going to be," and to be fair, this sounds like me about fifteen years ago, if I'm being honest. This person may say, my problem is that I'm just too dang smart for everyone. I'm too smart. I am just always going to be able to see through the illusory nature of these cultural ideals. And so what naturally goes along with that is that nothing will ever feel meaningful to me. It is effectively impossible for me to ever be a happy person. Becker would have seen this coming. Uh, he talks at one point about how in Western modernity, we think of it as such a valuable skill to have a really good BS detector. My words, not his. The point he's making, though, is that with so much information out there to sort through, we all want the ability to separate the legitimate ideas from things that... Okay, here is a lecture on Ernest Becker. An unanticipated byproduct of our vast intelligence 
Sheldon Solomon. And maintenance of what anthropologists call culture. I'm looking at my clock. I'm going to get a watch someday, but not today. All right, so, uh, and according to the anthropologists, uh, and according to Becker, culture is, consists of humanly constructed beliefs about the nature of reality uh, that we share with other people in our group that serves to reduce uh, death anxiety by giving us each a sense that we're valuable people in a meaningful universe. And so in The Birth and Death of Meaning, uh, Becker introduces terms that I like because they're straightforward. He says, you know, our psychological equanimity requires uh, that we believe that life has meaning and that we as individuals have value. So he points out, he's an anthropologist, he says, look, uh, all cultures have a description of the origin of the universe. All cultures have a prescription of how we ought behave while we're here. All cultures offer some hope of immortality, either literally through the heavens, afterlives, souls, and reincarnations of the world's great religions, or symbolically uh, through having children, amassing great fortunes, writing great symphonies, uh, scientific discoveries, and, and so on and so forth. And that's what gives us a sense uh, that we have meaning. And then uh, we also need to feel that as individuals we have value. And what he proposes is that Every society has social roles, and social roles are associated with particular standards of achievement. And if we can approximate or exceed those standards, then we can perceive ourselves as significant individuals in a world of meaning. And if we're lucky enough to be able to do that, that's what Ernest Becker called self-esteem. And he said self-esteem is the dominant uh, human motive, not to be confused with narcissism, by the way. If I can remember, I'll, I'll try and make a distinction uh, later on down the trail, or let's talk about this uh, when we're floating around. Uh, but uh, in, in a nutshell, uh, this is my sense of uh, what Ernest Becker is essentially arguing, that uh, we are unique amongst living things uh, because uh, we're intelligent enough to become aware of our own existence. This is both exhilarating as well as devastating because it makes us aware that we're going to die, we can die at any time, and, and that we're ephemeral animals. And in order to assuage the potentially debilitating terror that arises from those realizations, uh, we embed ourselves in cultural worldviews that give us each a sense that we're valuable members of a meaningful universe. And because of that, whether we're aware of it or not, we are highly motivated at all times uh, to maintain a sense of confidence in our cultural worldviews and a concurrent belief in our value in the context of the cosmological drama to which we subscribe. All right, so, two things. So, so what? And how do we know this is true? Um, and so, so what is like, well, all right, uh, what do we gain from these ideas? When we talk about, well, what's the function the uh, of the university? Surely it's not the only one. Right, so we want to feel significant. It's a vital, vital thing. century philosopher William James once wrote, Mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be essentially a theater for heroism. In this lecture, we are going to look at what Ernest Becker called the universal urge to heroism. We will investigate what heroism is, why individuals strive after it, 
and examine the different ways Becker proposed individuals attempt to achieve heroism. As a quick reminder, in the last lecture we discussed Becker's ideas regarding the fear of death. We saw how Becker proposed that if individuals were to grasp the full significance of their impending death, they would be overwhelmed with despair and anxiety. In order to act in the world with relative composure, he maintained that individuals require a psychological antidote to keep the fear of death hidden safely away in the recesses of the unconscious. This antidote, we noted, is found by acquiring the conviction that one's life is not insignificant and meaningless, like the lives of all other earthly creatures, but instead is of paramount importance. Becker called this attempt to deny one's creatureliness and to assert one's cosmic significance the urge to heroism. Heroism is first and foremost a reflex of the terror of death, wrote Becker in The Denial of Death. Some individuals satiate their drive to heroism by achieving fame, fortune, or performing courageous acts, that is, by becoming what we typically think of as a hero. However, Becker realized that such a path is not possible for most, and instead the vast majority of people must strive for heroism in a much more limited manner by attributing meaningful significance to their day-to-day -day actions. Whether they find this through their job, their relationship with a significant other, raising a family, or their devotion to a political party, the key is they must convince themselves that their actions are contributing to something significant that will live on after they die. Right, so it's not the fear of death, it's the fear of one's life being insignificant that uh, drives anyway, we drives go people. Uh, so, welcome back to the kill stream. Uh oh, here we go. There will be his, uh, welcome to the kill stream, Johnny. All right, I'll pause it for a second. Right, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Anglin calling in here. $3. I almost got that stick. <laughs> yeah, it's close. Oh, no, we're not. $3 was Shaggy ever found. Too much fun with Shaggy. That would be funny, though. Shaggy pulling the strings. William underscore 33 cent $3. Keep up the great work, Ethan and Mike. Thank you. Come on, guys. Where's Andrew? Okay, here we go. Anonymous in $3. Why do you think Mike keeps Striker around? There were stories of them going into a bathroom and sniffling while exiting. Oh, sniffling? Uh, I think that's why they, they keep him around. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to be why. Yeah, I think you answered it yourself. Uh, now, we had a, a ring at the door. Oh. Uh, Mr. Mr. Wang Lin was, uh, was going to call. I wonder, if you, I wonder if you could hear me. Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yes, what's up, sir? How's it going? <laughs> Not too bad. It's been an uh, interesting show here. That's been... Yes. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Johnny. It's nice to <laughs> nice to talk with you. It's been a while. It's been a very long time, sir. Um, so I thought this was I thought this was great to go into into the uh, your view of the background here. Um, just real quick, I mean, you know my background with these people, but just for the audience, uh, my background actually goes back longer than yours. I've known these people since I think 2011 or 2012. Um, so you know, I've known them a while. Um, and uh, you know, when the when the wife thing happened. I was I was very supportive of Mike when that happened. Um, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing now, but that's that's a fact. I, I said, you know, he didn't he didn't know he was going to get involved in this stuff. He didn't. Um, I, I don't think he. I mean, at the time, I said I don't think he was purposely deceiving anyone. He got involved in this stuff on the internet. I got red pilled about Jews, and he happened to be married to this woman, and I I, I defended him. Um, so then after that, um, he was involved with the TWP people with um, Heimbach and Matt Parrott, and this kind of like what became. Because I knew Heimbach going back to when he was in college, and he was just doing that white student union thing, and he became like this street marching, you know, like skinhead gang, like a neo-Nazi type gang. Matt Heimbach's group, which was called the People's Worker Party, or no, Traditionalist Workers Party, yes, so they right. became like a neo-Nazi gang. Um, 
And then Cantwell got involved in that. And then it kind of, I didn't really know that was going on. I was kind of doing my own thing. I wasn't really following this stuff super closely, but then it all came out of Charlottesville that this is like, a, they were wearing plastic stall helms and it was like this big violent neo-Nazi street fighting group, right. Involving, involving TWP and then, and then like the national socialist movement and league of the South. And then Cantwell was, I don't think he had a group, but he was kind of in that like skinhead and that's when that vice documentary and everything. So after Charlottesville happened, you know, I was very much optics, optics, optics. You can't go out there and look like neo-Nazi gang members. This isn't, nobody wants to see this shit. People don't like this. Um, and it, it looks like shit. And that's what, that's what, you know, if it would have been, people would have been more sympathetic looking at Charlottesville, that whole debacle would have gone down a lot different in my view. Right. So, everybody was that? If everybody dressed like me at Charlottesville would have been a lot different. Yeah, yeah. Everybody would just look like a normal person. Um, it, it wouldn't have been, you know, this, this whole thing that became like a, basically part of American, it's a big part of America. It is. Oh, part of Trump. Yeah. A big part of Trump, you know, that this thing was hanging over him, that he was like a leader of a neo-Nazi gang. So it was really, it was a, it was a worse debate. I mean, I've apologized for it, for promoting it. And I, I should have known more about what was going on with these. But like I say, I knew Matt Heimbach since 2012 or 2013. I, I wasn't aware that he was full on like plastic stallhound, all this stuff with these neo-Nazi groups and so on. So after that, I, I, you know, tried to work with TRS. I said, you know, you can't, like, is this what we want? Do we want to be neo Nazi? you want neo-Nazism? Like, that's the, that's the goal here is like a street marching neo-Nazi gang. And they, they, they kind of told me, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to go into private conversations or anything, but I'm pretty sure it was in public that they were like, no, we don't want to do this. We don't, we don't want to do like this. Um, and then it came out that, you know, Cantwell was working with the, with the FBI to get his charges marked down, which is a snitch. There's no, I mean, he's trying, he tried to say he was only snitching on Antifa. Right, which is like not, you know, if you go to prison, which he's in prison now, and I'm pretty sure they're not saying, well, who did you snitch on? You know, that's not, that's not really the way that works. You become an FBI snitch, you're an FBI snitch, you snitch on everybody. And he released video um, that he recorded at Charlottesville, body cam video, that, you know, people got did up on, on video that he gave the FBI and testimony that he gave the FBI. Um, so, you know, I, what TRS told me is that they were going to dissociate from all of that. But then slowly, and maybe it had to do with Stryker. I don't know. I, I also know Stryker before this. Yeah, but, he's um, great, right? Yeah, yeah, he wrote he wrote articles. They were pretty normal, and we would have conversations. And I can tell you, he was a little bit of a weirdo, but he, you know, he was he would kind of say like, "No, we don't want to be neo, we don't want to be a neo Nazi gang. We don't want to be a neo Nazi gang. Uh, that's not the goal." So um, then, so you know, the years go on to, I guess, only next year. So and, and I start noticing TRS is rehabilitating Heimbach. Well, Heimbach had that thing where he um, had sex with his mother in law, right? The cut right, yeah, yes, the, yeah, the cut box thing. Yeah. So they kind of dissociated from because I had been arguing that they should dissociate from Matt Heimbach before that, and then when that when he had sex with his mother in law and then beat up his father in law. Um, they kind of started to dissociate or did dissociate from him. But then over the next, I guess it's in 2018, they started to kind of act like they were friends again with Cantwell and started doing something, which Cantwell, you know, admitted FBI informant. And TWP, I mean, they seem to be involved. I don't know why you would act, I don't know why you would march through the streets in plastic stallhounds unless you were somehow connected to the FBI. I don't know how anybody could think of doing that otherwise. So um, I said, you know, I'm not going to be involved. And the other thing is um, I, I, I shared their shows and they told me that I tripled their numbers by sharing them on my website. That's what, that's what they told me, that their numbers tripled when I started sharing. So, um, you know, I stopped sharing their site and I said, look, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop being involved directly with you guys. I hope you made different decisions and being involved with, you know, TWP and Cantwell, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to disconnect from it. And then that audio with J.O., which I don't think was a true story. People say that I think this was a true story. That he was caught selling heroin. No, that, was, that podcast, excuse me, was a show called Anarchist Gumbo and it was literally high and just making stuff up. Yeah. For me, he said he was working, selling heroin and he was working for the FBI. And there was a, um, there was a background to that. So he had like a, a forum history that went back years of when he was involved in anarcho-capitalism that he was saying he was a heroin dealer and all this stuff. So and his story of like agreeing to be an FBI informant and then fleeing to the um, fleeing to South America on a on a private plane mm-hmm. uh, it did, did not sound like a real story. It sounded like his stories of like you know killing N words in uh, Africa. Like that was all his stories. Yeah, it, it's just it just all sounded like a bunch of bullshit. But I said this is like a, this is what an FBI informant would, would do to get involved in a um, involved in a group. And I, I, I called them out. I, well, I, I first called Mike and then he blocked me. And said, look, what is this? What is going on with this guy who's like some kind of freak and is talking about being involved with the FBI? He's talking about selling heroin. He's got this whole other thing where he said he killed black people in Africa. Why are you involved with this guy? What's going on? 
and you're, bring, you're trying to bring back Campbell, who's involved with it. We know he's an FBI informant. You're bringing back these TWP people. What are you doing? Just give me some kind of explanation here. And he, he blocked me on his phone. So I went out and like wrote about this. Um, that I, I think these people are compromised, um, you know, because they, they, they were willing to collapse their business model for d- defending this, uh, this jail guy. They, they, didn't, they were willing to go ahead and collapse their entire business model, which they, their numbers went straight down after this happened um, in order right. to, to keep this jail guy on, on board. And then you have Mike getting removed from that lawsuit um, and, and a lot of other different stuff. And then, of course, from that point, they started just going into being complete kooks where they're, they're promoting like lockdowns and vaccines, mm-hmm. they're promoting for, voting for Joe Biden and but what do you think of, I mean, what was it, what was it like in the background when, when all that stuff was happening? Were you privy to what their discussions were? Well, not really, no. Um, when, like I said, I stopped listening to the show when Jesse broke the keyboard after Christchurch. I was like, I can't. Okay, so did you guys watch uh, the end of Better Call Saul that wrapped up after, what, about six six seasons on, on Monday? And it, it, was, it was heartwarming and redemptive ending. So the main character, Saul Goodman, he gives up a sweet deal with with the government for only a seven-year sentence, and instead he gets popped with an 85-year sentence at a maximum security prison, but he gives it all up so that he can regain credibility with the woman who he loves. And I was thinking, this is so much more heartwarming than the Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell story. I mean, Jeffrey and Ghislaine could have grown old together. Right? They could have you know, built something together. They could have made a monogamous commitment to each other. They could have become mature. Jeffrey could have had a strong, independent woman who's willing to call him on his stuff. I mean, he dissipated himself with all these teeny boppers when he could have been building something with Ghislaine the whole time. Like a strong, committed relationship with an intelligent woman who's willing to call him out. And yeah, the years go by and the body starts to sag and there are wrinkles here. But what what really matters is the spiritual connection between two people. So why wasn't Jeffrey more like Saul Goodman? All right. Saul Goodman was willing to give up, you know, material comforts so that he could regain credibility with the one woman who really meant something to him, Kim Wexler. And uh that poor Jeffrey, right? He could have had a committed monogamous relationship with a woman his own age, right? A woman who is his equal, a woman who's just going to call him out when, you know, he's saying or doing something stupid, you know, a woman who's going to challenge him. And yet he just kept dissipating his essence with, with all these teeny boppies. Uh, like what a mistake, you know, Jeffrey, you could have really built something with Ghislaine. You should have been like Saul Goodman, man. Take care. Bye-bye.